turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. We'll spend most of our time there. I've got enough wires on me here. If I get fall into baptistry, I'll light up like a Christmas tree. I'm going to try to cut this one on. I think that works. Thank you for the invitation to come and to, to be with you. I come through this area a lot. Uh, I used to make an annual trip over to Fall Creek, and, and uh, I've climbed over on the Cumberland Plateau and done some climbing and rappelling at Fall Creek when I was 40. I had always made the statement that I was going to run that hill up into Spencer that goes up on top of that mountain. I wandered over here on my 40th birthday and ran that ridiculous hill. Uh, I stop every time I come through McMinnville at the outpost, a little army surplus store in the corner there. Nearly, oh, I was 30, I think, 22 years ago. I had a green army jacket that I got for Christmas, and I wanted a black one. Uh, I work some with a SWAT team. I'm their chaplain and their rappel master. And uh, I said, I know where the little army surplus store is, and I'll take that jacket and see if they'll trade me. It was in the spring, and I'd met this little group out of Murfreesboro to do a retreat at Fall Creek, and those folks traded me even for this black jacket. I gave them a green one. They gave me a black one, and it snowed. That was the year it snowed so much on uh, on us, and I was the only person at that camp had a jacket. I was so thankful. So every time I come through here, I try to buy something from those folks at their army surplus store. When you talk about dealing with our kids... And I started in youth ministry in the spring of 1980. And so if you do the math, uh, I was 16. I was a junior in high school, worked for John Rice at the 25th of Noble Street Church in Anniston, Alabama. I gave up a spot on the wrestling team to be their youth minister. And with the exception of some pulpit work, and of course at a small country church in Arkansas, when you're the pulpit minister, you're the youth minister too. But with, with that exception, I've always had some title that involved youth up until this last year, I am now the intergenerational minister at the Meridianville Church of Christ. That means I'm too old to work with the kids and too young to work with the senior citizens. That's a polite way of telling me we really don't know what to do. But other than that, since 1980, in some capacity, I've worked with, with kids and teenagers and youth. Uh, I went into private practice about 17 years ago as a therapist. The majority of my practice is youth and family. Uh, I do some adventure-based therapy, if you're familiar with Project Adventure or Outward Bound. And I built a challenge course for Wellstone Behavioral Services. And I'd say 95% of our clientele that comes through our course is, is adolescents and pre-adolescents and youth. Lots and lots of experience with kids. And, and, and it's very easy to get caught up on the, the threat of the day or the topic of the day when you talk about the challenges facing our young people, specifically the challenges facing our young people spiritually. The number one thing that affects all Christians is selfishness. We put a handle on selfishness and get rid of it, we solve our problems. Selfishness is the common denominator behind all sin. James 3.16 says we have selfish ambition, every evil thing exists. If we could deal, if we could deal with selfishness, that's the number one threat facing all Christians all Americans, all people, and all marriages. If we get a handle on that, it would be very easy to solve the majority of our problems. The second thing that I think affects us, and this is what we'll talk about some tonight, is just the idea of whether or not our young people have a spiritual self-identity. And by spiritual self-identity, it's when you see yourself, do you see yourself as a physical person or a spiritual person. Not 100% accurate, but true or false. You don't have a soul. 
Most folks immediately say false. Or true, I guess. I say false. You are a soul. You have a body. When this thing is done, and it doesn't improve with age, by the way, when this thing is done, I continue to exist. We ever get our young people to view themselves not in this context, but in the context of the unseen. If we ever get our young people to develop a spiritual self-identity, once you understand who you are, you've already made the decisions about what you do or don't do. And as Jesus begins to talk to his audience, and in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount. There's no way in in this short amount of time that I can do an adequate job with the Sermon on the Mount. There's just too much detail. But an overview, and that's one of the things that I made a mistake as a preacher, most of us preachers do that, is, is we spend so much time developing the intricacies of a text that we never look at the thing as a whole. When you look at the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is talking about is internals versus externals. He's talking about actions versus attitudes. When Jesus is talking to his audience, he, he starts out with the beatitudes, internal things, things that if we possess and we have and we think and we are, then life changes for us. The, the concept here of blessed is, is the idea of a state of being in spite of circumstances. It doesn't care what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter what. You're blessed. You're at peace. You're, at, you're still if you're not spiritually arrogant. You're blessed if you regret what you are without God. You're blessed if you have a meekness and submit yourself to the will of God. You're blessed if your agenda is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're blessed if you can forgive people, if you have mercy. You're blessed if you love with a pure heart. You're blessed if you can be a peacemaker. You're blessed if even though you're persecuted because of your righteousness, you don't give it up. Jesus starts out immediately talking about attitudes And then what was read for us is kind of the scary part of the sermon. Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. Now, folks, if I start a conversation with you, if I walk up to you in the parking lot and say, Look, I don't want to hurt your feelings, what am I about to say? If I walk up to you and say, Look, I don't want you to get mad, you recognize that when somebody starts out with a caveat or a disclaimer, their next statement is likely to be a bombshell, right? Do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. Jesus is telling his audience, I'm going to say some things to you, and it's going to sound like I'm taking your view of God, your view of the law, your view of the prophets, and turn them upside down. He emphasizes the importance of the law and the prophets. He says, I say unto you that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or one tittle from the law will pass away. A jot is a dot of ink. A tittle is if you're writing with an old quill pen and you dip it in the ink and you write and then you pick your pen up and move and you get an ink drag or you get a filament of paper that scratches that paper, that's a tittle. Jesus said you won't get a dot or an ink scratch away from the law until it's all fulfilled. And I don't want you to get the idea that I came to destroy it, but I came to tell you how to make it work for you. And then he starts this juxtaposition between the concept of religious versus righteous. Verse 20, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, folks, if you want to understand what that sounded like to his audience, let's just say that you have a guest speaker. He walks up here, gets in the pulpit, gets his introduction, and says, let me ask your elders and your deacons to stand up, and, and, and they stand up. Hey, if you don't do better than these guys, you're going to hell. That's how he started his sermon. Now, you'd have to take a number who drug him out of the pulpit and whipped him, right? But that's how Jesus just started this lesson. I don't want you to think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy but fulfill. And if you don't do better than those guys, you're not going to heaven. And then he begins to tell them about a problem they had of internals versus externals. And those internals versus externals take on basically about four manifestations. It's legalism, egotism, materialism, and criticism. Those are the four main manifestations when you get your internals versus your externals wrong. And Jesus kind of hits those four things almost in order. Sometimes they blend together. When he, when he begins to talk about the, the internals versus externals, and we talk about legalism. And legalism is, is, is a word that sometimes is thrown around. Properly understood, legalism is not a bad thing. I'm a legalist when it comes to a firearm safety. I got a couple of standard rules that I don't break when it comes to a weapon. Every gun is loaded. You don't point a weapon at anything you don't intend to shoot or kill. Period. If you've got permission to pull it, you've got permission to pull the trigger. If you ain't got permission to pull the trigger, don't pull it. Plain and simple. I shoot about 400 rounds a month with a SWAT team. I'm not an operator, but I'm way above a civilian gun handler. And I've got some rules that keep me safe. I, I'm a legalist when it comes to, to climbing equipment. This adventure course that we run, uh, I use Robertson harnesses to, to keep the kids safe when they're up in the air doing the stuff. The manufacturer of those harnesses says about every five to seven years, retire those harnesses from service. Now, the harness I use out in the woods, the harness I use on rocks, the harness I use in caves, the harness I use when I'm climbing trees, that thing gets beat up. It gets in the sun, it gets in the wind, it gets in the rain, it gets rubbed on rocks. It, it, the harnesses we use on a ropes course are on a, a ropes course. We use class two telephone poles and everything runs over cables. Those harnesses never get any abuse. But every five years we take a scissor to them. Because the manufacturer says if you use them past five years, they have a shelf life, you put somebody's risk at danger. It's not wrong to be a legalist if you do it properly. But what these guys were doing, they were taking the intent of God's law and they were fulfilling the, the letter of the law, but they had not considered the spirit of the law. Jesus gives several examples. We'll try to do with maybe two or three. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Rekah, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. I turned down an invitation to speak at a summer series two years ago. They said, Lonnie, we want you to come over, drive about four hours, speak on a Wednesday night for 30 minutes, and your topic is, thou shalt not kill. I said, I don't think our brethren have a big problem with that. I don't think I'll come. Of all the places that I speak, and, and, and people are very kind to me, I'll probably speak at, at 45 events this year. If I walk into a church building and say, how many folks here have ever killed anybody? You know how many times anybody raises their hand in a church service? And if they do, they're a soldier or a police officer. And that's not murder. That's 
justified by Romans 13. But when you ask our people, hey, y'all got a problem killing each other? <laughs> That's not a big issue. And Jesus says, you've heard people say, don't murder. And, and our people sit back and they go, yeah, we've never killed anybody. You ever hated anybody? You ever called anybody a fool? An idiot? A queer? A fag? Insert your racial slur? Oh, we've never put our hands on anybody and killed anybody. But how many people have we looked at who were created in the image of God and that Jesus came to die for and gave them those labels that devalue them? I disagree with the the decision our Supreme Court made. But let me tell you something, folks. The LGBTQ movement and the same-sex marriage movement are not your enemy. They are victims of your enemy, the devil. And he sold them the lie and is stealing their souls. But if he can get us to hate them, if he can get us to hate those people, not only do they go to hell, but we go to hell too for hating. We've got to learn that the difference in religious and righteous is not that we didn't kill anybody, but how do we view people when we meet them? How do we treat people when we interact with them? This is not about the word fool and the word rakon. It's about the attitude that exists in my heart that I can look at somebody who's created in the image of God that Jesus came to die for and label them as anything other than needing the gospel. If I can look at people and give them those kind of labels, I'm not righteous. I'm just merely religious. He takes it a step further in Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that your members should perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You know the difference between hate and murder? One's internal, one's external. You know the difference between lust and adultery? One's internal, one's external. Folks, one of the dangers that's facing our young people is we teach them some sense of technical purity. We teach them that purity is a line you cross on the body. We teach them that modesty is a, a, a measurement from the, from the knees. And purity and modesty, something exists in the heart. See, so if you're out here fooling around and, and chasing somebody else's wife, somebody will find it. Your picture will be on Facebook. Somebody will tweet it. You will end up on Instagram. But you can never touch another person physically, but when you look at them, they become an object of lust, an object of fantasy, an object of desire. You can up your computer and you have 800 million pornographic websites available to you. Ladies, you can read a romance novel and not have any dirty pictures in it, but the idea that they present there about what love is is not what the Bible teaches about what love is. And our young people can watch videos and read books or surf their computers or look at their iPads and never touch another person and all of us lose our purity because of what takes place in our minds and in our hearts. We control what's in our minds and our hearts. We'll control what we do with our bodies. And yet we've had this technical definition of virginity that our young people, as long as they've not gone all the way, they're technically pure when they're married. And that's a lie the devil has sold us. Because purity is about a state of heart and a state of mind. 
and when I view myself as I am pure, then I don't have to ask how far is too far and how much is too much and how short is too short and how tight is too tight. When I define myself as I am pure, then those questions don't have to be asked because they've already been answered. He'll go further. If you go down to uh, verse 38, you have heard it said by those of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. My interpretation of this is that they had this law that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so if I'm going out here carrying on business and you chip my tooth, I'll chip yours. And if you poke my eye out, I get yours. I believe the intent of God's law was that if somebody knocks out your tooth, the only thing you can demand from them is your tooth. You can't knock my tooth out and I take your head. You can't poke my eye out and I burn your house down. God set up a civil system that said, if you get wounded, it's type and kind. You can't sue somebody for $8 million because you spilled hot coffee in your lap. And technically, the McDonald's was at fault because their coffee percolator was actually too hot according to standards. And we make a joke out of that, but really, they were at fault. Anyway, when... When you talk about being a litigious society, these people had taken it that if you knock my tooth, I get your tooth. If you knock my eye, I get you. And they wouldn't let it go. The law says I've got to have a tooth when you get my tooth. And I've got to have an eye. And Jesus says, look, the law was set up so that you couldn't overcompensate yourself. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But let me tell you, if somebody needs you coat to settle the dispute... If it takes giving him your cloak, also give it to him. And if you've got to slap me to feel better, well, slap me twice, maybe you'll feel real better. And if I've got to go with you a mile, why don't I go two? And what Jesus was saying is, it's your job to make peace with people, not to get even with people. It's your job to make peace with people and forgive people. It's your job to settle matters with people. And, and, and yet we've got this idea. I've even heard people debate that you don't have to forgive somebody unless they ask it. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed that prayer while they were murdering him and they were not penitent. Folks, when you fail to forgive somebody, it's like drinking poison hoping it kills the other guy. And Jesus is telling them that in order to be righteous with God, you make sure you don't have any outstanding debts with, with your brethren. That if somebody has something against you, you do what it takes to make peace with them. And if they want your cloak, give them your coat. And they tell you you've got to go a mile, go too. You do what it takes to make things right. And then he follows it up. Verse 43, you've heard it said by those of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I can do that kind of math. I got two kind of people. I got people I like and people I don't like. I got people I smile at, people I shoot at. I love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Solid. But I say to you, he's going to change this rule up. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In order that... Or some versions just say that. Some versions say so that 
you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I treat you the way I treat you and it has nothing to do with how you behave. I interact with you the way I interact with you and it has nothing to do with how you interact with me. I treat you the way I treat you in order that I may be a son of my Father so that my spiritual self-identity is consistent. I'm not doing this all the time, saying that I'm a child of God, but, but having people that I call my enemies. If we're enemies, that's because you use that label, not me. Because if you're my enemy, I'm supposed to love you and bless you and do good to you and pray for you. And that's the same way I treat my friends. And I treat you the way I treat you. It has nothing to do with how you treat me. Because you're rude doesn't give me permission to be rude. Because you're dishonest doesn't give me permission to be dishonest. Because you're selfish doesn't give me permission. I choose to behave the way I behave because I am a son of my father. And when we teach our young people that spiritual self-identity is what makes ethics, that as I view myself in a certain way, it changes the way I interact with people. That's legalism. Where we take the, the, the letter of the law and don't understand the spirit of the law. The second thing he's going to talk about is, is egotism. And I'm afraid sometimes that, that we do the things we do religiously and, and it's about what it does for us not about praising God or serving other people. Jesus will talk about three things in chapter 6. He'll talk about giving charity, he'll talk about praying, and he'll talk about fasting. And all three of those things end with this concept. Verse 3 of chapter 6, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Skip over to about verse uh, 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret. We reward you openly. Now we skip the section on prayer. And notice what he says about prayer in verse 5. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. You see those those three religious acts of giving charity, fasting, and praying? And Jesus said they're not a show. They're not done for other people's benefits. They're not done so folks will look at you and go, hey, wow, that was great. I think we need to teach young men to speak. I think we need to teach young men to lead singing. I think we need to teach young men to read Scripture properly in, in public. I think we need to teach our young ladies to do that in a ladies' setting. But, but I'm afraid that, that we've got down to the, the fact now that sometimes we polish the pulpit and we worship the reflection. And what we do in public is not for us to get accolades and praises from men. What we do it, it should be done as service to God. And, and I, 
I've gone on mission trips. I've gone on flood relief trips. I've built houses in Honduras and done Patch Adams ministries in, in the hospitals in third world countries. Went to the flood relief in Missouri and, and, and delivered the sheetrock to Iowa. But at some point, our short-term mission trips have almost become like spiritual outward bound. We go on these mission trips and we come home talking about how we felt and what we did and how much... And I thought service was about the person who needed serving, not about how it made us feel. And and somewhere down the line, we've confused doing something for somebody that makes us feel good equaling righteousness. Jesus said when you do a charitable deed... It's not on display. You do that secretly. She said, when you pray, it's not about standing up and having an eloquent prayer that, that, that people hear. I remember when I was a little boy that the men who used to lead our public prayers knelt. It was before they had wireless mics. You hear old brother Calvin Pettis' knees crack. He'd walk up to that pulpit and he had a, a, a mic on a long line. He'd pull it out and he'd kneel and you hear those little knees pop and the men in our congregation would kneel in the aisles. And I guess for convenience, we have to stand when we pray. But when did praying and standing in the presence of God become a show, become a thing about eloquence, and not about talking to our Father in heaven? And fasting. These guys, and we don't fast in our society, the purpose of fasting was to take the time it took to prepare a meal, eat a meal, and clean up after the meal and dedicate that time to meditation on God or to prayer. But these guys would put makeup, disfigure their faces, they put makeup and hollow out their cheeks, dishevel their hair, and walk around like a zombie. Bob, what you doing? Oh, I've been fasting three days. You know how religious I am. Jesus said, when you fast, nobody should know you're doing it. And if you're out here wandering around showing people you're fasting, you're not doing what fasting was set up to do. You're not forsaking a meal and taking that time and using it to worship God or to meditate on God. If you just put your cell phone down for an hour and say, I'm not going to touch that phone and I'm going to think about God. If you put that remote down and say, I'm not going to watch this program and I'm going to think about God. If you, if you put anything down and replace that time slot with meditation on God, that's equivalent to fasting. But these guys weren't even accomplishing what fasting was about because instead of fasting and, and meditating and dedicating their, their life to insight on God's Word, they wandered around the streets so folks could see how religious they were because they were fasting. See, that's egotism. That's doing what you do so folks will say, that a, that a boy. I don't much care for the Rocky movie. I don't got anything against boxers. don't really have anything against Sylvester Stallone. When I joined the police as a chaplain, and I'm not a cop, I'm not an operator, I'm not a shooter, but I got attached to this SWAT team. The first day I walked down there and met those officers in 1992, I was 29 years old, and they invited me to run with them. In fact, one guy sitting there stretching out said, you going to run with us, Reverend? I didn't think it was the time to have that discussion. I had on a pair of khaki pants, a pair of Rockport shoes, and a, a, a golf shirt. I took my shirt off and ran three miles with those guys. They liked to kill me. Well, I decided if I'm going to be an effective chaplain, I need to run with these boys. They only run once a week. They run on Tuesday nights, our training night. Well, I started running five days a week. I started running, 
And I've run in the mornings, I've run in the evenings, I've run at midnight, I've run when the black flag was out, the arsenal, they said it was too hot. I've run in the rain and I've run in the cold. And I've never yet been on a jog and had theme music playing behind me and hordes of children following me, clapping and singing along behind me. I don't run because of what you think. I run because it's necessary to do that ministry, to do that mission. And when we start doing our religious things based on somebody else's... Folks, prayer has not been banned from school. Now, you can't stand up and lead one. But you can pray in every class, at every break, at every meal, and at every sporting event. They can't stop you. But somehow we got our feelings hurt because folks couldn't hear us pray. That's not banning prayer. That's banning some of the accolades and some of the, the, the attention we get from prayer. But they didn't ban prayer at my school. They didn't ban prayer at the police force. They didn't ban prayer at the police academy. But a lot of prayer goes on with those guys. Not always public. When we start doing the things that we do religiously because we're waiting on somebody else's reaction, we're not serving God. We're serving men. The third thing that tends to get in the way of our, of our children is, is, is materialism. Somehow we've fallen for this idea that, that being comfortable and wealthy equals being righteous. And that's just not true. The Bible doesn't teach therapeutic moralistic deism. The Bible teaches that, that men who serve God sometimes starve to death. The men who serve God sometimes lived in caves and wandered around in goat skins. Read the juxtaposition in Hebrews 11 of the people who quenched fires and put out the violence of swords and had their dead raised and the folks who lived in sheep skins and goat skins and were tortured and murdered. Both those folks had, had two different outcomes, but they all remained faithful. And sometimes we've taught a, a, a false gospel that says you do what's right and you cross all your I's and, and, and dot all your T's and, and you'll get what you're supposed to get. Listen what what Jesus says about stuff. Verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust is corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, internals versus externals. My brother says it's like an old version of a, let's make a deal. Behind door number one is something worthless you can't keep. Behind door number two is something priceless you can't lose. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. When you put your investment in the stuff that's worthless, that won't last anyway, what kind of choice have you made? When we begin to invest our lives in the things that are priceless, that we can't use, the things that are seen versus the things that are unseen, the things that are temporary versus the things that are eternal, Jesus says, no man can serve two masters, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other. He'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And he uses the word mammon like an anthropomorphism of stuff. He makes mammon into a god. And you can't serve God and the God of stuff. And somehow we get caught up in the idea that the more stuff we have, the more righteous we are. The more stuff we have, the better off we are. Paul will talk about, command those who are rich to use their riches to serve people and not to be haughty about it. And we're rich if we're in America. 
But somehow the, the challenge of our teenagers is for them to learn that he who dies with the most toys still dies. And it's not about stuff. And everything you say yes to is something else you say no to. And when you start a job that's going to take you away from your family and the kingdom, that's a choice you've made. I told my little girl when she was young, I said, sweetheart, you can drive a Corvette and I'll never be at a volleyball game. But you can drive a used Toyota and I'll sit up there until they ask me to leave. <laughs> that's a choice you make. You, you make choices. Young people, if you make $35,000 a year and you live on thirty, you'll feel like you're rich. If you make 185000 a year and you live on 186000 you'll feel like the wolves are at your door all the time. And quit buying the lie that the most stuff makes you happy. I went to Harding University and would not have been able to finish if a lady anonymously hadn't paid for some of my schooling. I remember propping up a Coke machine and sliding my history book under it and getting a change out so I'd have the money to eat. I didn't know I was poor. I just thought I was smart. (laughs) My family was very poor. My dad made $125 every two weeks and raised two boys on it. We didn't know we were poor. We were happy and loved. I knew dad loved the Lord and mom loved the Lord and dad and mom loved each other and dad and mom loved us. And somehow we've got the idea that our young people, we what is your grades and what's your major going to be and what you're going to do for a living? rather than how are you going to serve God. It's good to be proud of your kids. And my, you know, People say, my daughter's an A student, or my son's a quarterback, or my son's a musician. and I, That's good. My daughter played Division I volleyball. She's four foot ten. If you don't know much about volleyball, that's an odd thing. <laughs> you know, and they paid her $58,000 to go to school. That's a dollar per inch of her height. I don't know why she couldn't have been six foot and got a little more. T- but anyway... But rather than saying this is an A student or this is a B student or this is a quarterback, this is God's student. They make A's, B's, or C's. This is God's student. He plays football. This is God's student. She she marches in the band. This is God's student. She's on the math team. Third John 3 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. When we give our children a spiritual self-identity and say we're not worried whether you're doctors, lawyers, plumbers, or ditch diggers, as long as you're God's plumbers, lawyers, ditch diggers, then you're successful. When we do that, then materialism won't corrupt their spirituality. And then the last thing he talks about, well, before we do that, just look at these, these rhetorical questions that Jesus asked. Verse 25, I say to you, do not worry about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink or your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather to barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than one of them? You ever watch little animals? You ever seen the little swallows that live up under the bridges? How do they know how to build those intricate nests made out of that mud? You ever look closely at a hornet's nest? and how they just seem to appear where you don't want them to. I sit out there in those deer woods hunting, 14 degrees, bundled up, shaking to my bones. A chipmunk runs out looks at you like, you're an idiot. He's not cold and he's not hungry because his father, his heavenly father, clothed him. I'm more important than a chipmunk. 
I've got way more value than a hornet. I've got way more value than one of these little wrens that build these little nests. And if God provides for them, won't He provide for you? Which one of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? I think it's obvious that I just want him to comment on that. All right? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. You ever looked at a flower? A blossom on a, on a honeysuckle vine? A rose? A blackberry blossom? A magnolia tree? Solomon with every, and Solomon was so rich that they said gravel, that silver in his kingdom was as common as gravel. I'd like him to come pay my driveway. And yet Solomon with all his glory couldn't put on what a flower puts on. And how long does that flower last? It's here today in the Martin oven. Oh, if you have little faith, are you not worth more than these? Don't worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? These are the things the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And these other things will be added. God will give you what you need, not always what you want, but what you need. And then the fourth thing that challenges our young people is criticism. Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, and you will not be judged. For the judgment that you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at a speck in your brother's eye and don't consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And when he says judge, please understand, he's not talking about comparing something to a standard. The next time a state trooper pulls you over, tell him, you're judging me. He'll say, no, there's a number on that sign, there's a number on my radar gun, those two don't match. That's not judging. When you have a standard to evaluate something with, it's right or it's wrong. And, and, and so when, when you start looking at what's in and what's out and what counts and what doesn't, that's not judging. Judging what he's talking about here is the idea of, of me comparing me to you in order for me to feel more righteous. Literally what it does, it takes something that is little bitty in your life and I blow it out of proportion so I can take something that's big in my eye and minimize it. We do an awful lot of that. Folks, we're all guilty of sin. And I don't know where we got the idea that one sin was bigger than the other sin. Well, you, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but at least I didn't do it. No. We've all got sin in our lives. One of my closest friends in the world is a big guy named Derek Horse. Derek is six foot seven and tops around 300 pounds. He can stand on his knees and reach higher than I can reach standing flat-footed. If I cut his legs off tonight in his sleep, do you know how tall I'll be in the morning? I'll still be five foot four because cutting him to pieces won't make me an inch taller. And eating somebody up religiously won't make you a step closer to God. And telling somebody how wrong they are in an unloving manner won't make you any more right than you are right now. And Jesus was saying that your relationship with God is not this thing where you compare yourself to others and as long as I'm ahead of you, I'm closer to God. That's, that's not. And I'm afraid sometimes we've taught our, our young people a critical view of other people. 
we get to say, because you're not like me or you disagree with me, I can dismiss you. We become critical of, of almost irrelevant technicalities. I went to a, a seminar taught by Chris Herzog. Chris Herzog's a cage fighter. I got invited to go to a leg lock seminar. And what you do at a leg lock seminar is you learn how to do leg locks. And since I do some self-defense classes and goof around with the cadets and stuff, uh, I thought a leg lock seminar would be something worth my time. So I spent the better part of two days with Chris Herzog learning how to do these leg submissions. Well, I left the seminar and went to a retreat where Andy White was, was the host. And I walked in the door and I wasn't really dressed like I, like I'd just come out of the house. I'd been to that seminar. Andy said, Lonnie, where you been? I said, I've been to a leg lock seminar. He said, what do you do at a leg lock seminar? Well, you do leg locks. I said, there's a thing I can do where I hook under your calf and your heel, trap your legs with my thigh, and, and I can dislocate your knee. And a kid sitting beside me laid his leg in my lap. I said, well, good luck with that. And he had a titanium steel bar from the knee down. The tornadoes that came through our area several years ago had picked him up and thrown him out of his house. And he'd lost his leg from the thigh down. He had an artificial knee, an artificial ankle, and a titanium steel leg. I said, we're going outside, get on Facebook. And I wrapped his leg up in that leg lock. And I grabbed under his leg and grabbed my own wrist and grabbed that bar just so it would make a good picture. You're really supposed to do a gable grip, pull up, and bend down. But I, I did that, and I sent that picture to Chris Herzog. I said, Chris, your leg lock doesn't work. Chris texted me back said, your grip is wrong. <laughs> Had nothing to do with my grip. I was holding a two-inch titanium steel bar. You could have had any kind of grip you wanted, and you still couldn't bend the bar. Sometimes in churches we get so busy about analyzing people's grips we fail to ignore there's a big bar lying there that nobody will ever bend. And We've learned that my relationship with God is not in comparison to your relationship with God. See, you compare yourself to Jesus, you've got work to do. When I compare myself to Jesus, I've got work to do. We've got to quit pretending that, that, that we're ranked in the church. Jesus tells his disciples when they're arguing about who's first, he goes, you call each other brother. And folks, brother's not a title. Brother's an adjective. That means we're equal. That means we're the same. I mean, God loves you as much as God loves me. God loved us when we were sinners. And God loves us when we're his children. And God loves the people out there that aren't his children yet. And wants us to love them too. But when we can look at them and go, oh, look at what they did. We must be righteous. We, we fail. And we teach our young people that attitude. They fail too. Because Jesus says the only way that people will know that you're my disciples is if you have love one for another. And then he talks about consistency. He talks about the straight and the narrow way. He talks about knowing people by their fruits. He talks about that just because people say, hey, Lord, we did all these great things for you. He may say, I never knew you. And then he closes with this illustration. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does, then I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was found on a rock. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell. And great was its fall. I used to read this and think that one house looked like a, a great big mansion and the other house looked like something one of the three little pigs built. That's, that's not what this teaches. Both these houses look the same. 
Both these houses look like viable, good dwelling places. Both these houses got exactly the same weather. Read verse 25 and 27. The rain descended, the winds blew, the floods came and beat on that house. Exactly the same. You can't tell where the fool lives and you can't tell where the wise man lives based on the conditions around the house. The only way you can tell where the wise man lived or where the fool lived is foundational. Internals versus externals. He closes the Sermon on the Mount with a powerful illustration that says, you can't judge and say, look, that, that fool got this at his house. Oh, that guy's wise, nothing happened. No, both those houses got the storm. The storm destroyed one of those houses and the storm didn't destroy the other. The house that didn't get destroyed had the foundation. Christianity thrived on the Roman Empire. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were faithful and prominent in the kingdom of Babylon. Joseph served his God and rose to power in Egypt. The danger facing our young people is not what the Supreme Court does or who sits in the Oval Office. Because if they have an internal relationship with God, if they have a spiritual self-identity, it doesn't really matter who runs this country. Your Father runs the universe. And if we teach our young people spiritual self-identity, avoid legalism, egotism, materialism, criticism, these external, superficial, earthly dangers won't matter because they've got their spiritual bases covered. When you see yourself, do you see yourself as a child of God? And is it a consistent picture? If you have not been baptized for the remission of your sins, you're not a child of God. You're out here lost in sin. That sin has no remedy other than the blood of Christ. And the only way to contact the blood of Christ is by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. You die to your old self and rise to be a new self, a person with a spiritual self-identity. And if you've had that burial, if you've had that rebirth, but you've not been living according to the wishes of your Father, then you're lost again, or at least you're separated. And we offer at the end of all of our lessons an invitation. If you're not a Christian, we can study with you and we can baptize you. If you are a Christian and you've wandered away and you want to come back, we can pray with you and pray for you. And the Lord's invitation is yours right now while we stand and while we sing.